And if we can see it, we can almost always change it. That's the fun thing about brain mapping. If it's in the way, oh, okay, let's go after it. If we can't interpret it, it's not in the way. And it's not that, that interesting. Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to episode 166 of the Biohacker Babes. My name is Renee and I'm tuning in with my sister Lauren today. Hey, hey, how are you? Mm -hmm. Good. How's it going over there? Excellent. I'm excited to chat about our guest that's coming on. We are recording this in post, so it's a good brain challenge. See if we can remember what we talked about. <laughs> what did we learn about our brains a week yeah. ago? Yes. Yes. We have Dr. Andrew Hill coming back on the podcast. We had him on, I can't believe it. It was over two years ago, August, 2020. It was like the peak of the pandemic. I remember we had this fabulous conversation with him all about brain mapping and neurofeedback. So I highly, highly recommend you go back and check out that episode because it was a little bit more of like the 101 on what all of that is. And then today we take a deeper dive and we, Lauren and I are open books in this episode. We show you what is happening inside of our brains today. If you want more of a visual, which I think is super cool to see, head over to YouTube because we are going to publish this on YouTube so you can see that. Um, but he does a great job explaining what is maybe optimal or suboptimal in our brains and things that we can do to um, optimize what's happening up there. <laughs> yeah. So we each did a Zoom call with him one-on-one -on -one after we got our brain scans back to review the results. So this was not the first time we were going through it. I'll say for me, my experience going through my results was pretty um, confirming and also astounding. Is that the word? Yeah. That's a good adjective for that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was pretty surprised, but at the same time, it's a little bit like checking your stats in the morning, checking your aura ring where you're like, I'm pretty sure that this happened last night and this is my readiness. And then you get the data to confirm, which hopefully you're doing in that order, checking in with yourself and then the data. That's how I felt with Dr. Hill. I was like, okay, these are the problems I'm experiencing. I didn't share any of that with him. It was kind of like going to a psychic. For that sure. was all like, that was my personal information. And he looked at my scan. He was like, you're probably experiencing this. I was like, how did you know that? That's crazy. And yeah. things that I did not necessarily expect that would be helped by neurofeedback. He was like, oh, we can definitely take care of that. And I think this broad, wide, holistic perspective of the brain, when we look at all of the things, not just for optimization, biohacking performance, you know, we're trying to optimize and take it to the next level, but people that are really struggling with addiction or ADHD, anxiety, brain is second fight or flight. What else would you add to that list? Yeah. I think also some of like the repetitive thinking. I mean, that was something that stood out for me. Like if, rumination. If, yeah. Yeah. That you, you don't have to get or accept that as normal. Like there are ways to break through that 
And that was one of my kind of psychic moments. He was like, do you ever have these like repetitive thoughts that you can't seem to break out of? I'm like, again, how did you know? You know, get out of um, my head, <laughs> get out of my head. But, yeah. but then, I mean, and he talks about how, you know, some of these brain things, they're not, they're not necessarily labeled as good or bad. It's just, okay, is that helping us? If we tweak that, could we optimize something else in our life? Um, so I really appreciate his perspective on that. And I think, you know, all of our brains are so different. So it's like, yeah, how can we tweak mm-hmm. things to make it work best in our favor? Yeah. My favorite thing that he says, and I've heard him say this a couple of times, is that we have no problem changing the brain. It's really just understanding it. That's the opportunity. If we understand it, then we have the opportunity to change it. So there's really no ceiling here. There's nothing that we can't optimize as far as the brain. I think it's really important in this time where supplements are so like so on the forefront of biohacking and nutrition and lifestyle. Nootropics are really in the forefront. You know, we're taking things, we're putting more inputs into our body to hopefully optimize our sleep, our performance, our attention whatnot. And we didn't get into whether or not he believes in those or not. I'm sure I'm assuming that as icing on top, he would say that they could be supportive, that the neurofeedback, like retraining those pathways, making sure you have the right amount of each brainwave states and that they're being used at the particular time that they were designed to be used. Where in our brains, you know, when they're less than optimal, things kind of the, the wires get crossed and certain waves are active when they shouldn't be. And that's how I personally have like lighter sleep and sometimes poor sleep. You know, it's not just, I'm a dolphin. That's my chronotype. That is my sentence. There's nothing I can do about it. Like there are ways that we can retrain those brain waves to be optimized. And then that's coming into my everyday life where I do feel sometimes that I, you know, I have struggled to come up with words at times and I feel like speech is a little late. And that was one of my psychic moments with him. He was like, do you have this? I was like, mm-hmm, sure do. So yeah, I think this episode really is for everyone. If there's anything in your life that you're trying to optimize, you know, the brain is like our master control center. Let's come back to the brain and see if there's something up here and an opportunity up here. If you're trying to control something below the neck, any of the things we just mentioned, performance, tension, sleep, energy, ADD, addiction, autism. He's doing a lot of work in that realm, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. And, and back to the brain mapping thing. I think it's also cool that for biohackers, he's letting you do brain map clean, which is like no stimulants or anything. And then he calls it brain mapping dirty where you're doing like caffeine or nootropics. He even has people do Adderall or Ritalin or maybe some marijuana before to see, you know, people that think that they do function better on any of those. He actually finds that they don't. And actually a friend of ours just did the brain mapping. And she told me she did just with a cup of coffee and she was actually more ADD with the coffee with the coffee. But most of us think on coffee, I'm like, oh, I'm getting all this stuff done. I'm really productive. But maybe you're not being optimally productive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was an interesting thing. I would love to play with that more. And if anyone wants to do this, the really cool thing is you can do it from home. So you don't have to go to the center. I mean, I'm sure the centers are amazing. There's one in LA, one in New York, elsewhere, but you can do this all from home. They ship you everything and you do it on Zoom. Pretty cool. Yeah. So stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out how to do that, how to have access to the brain scan, the QEEG, and then the EEG neurofeedback. And if you haven't heard our first episode with him, go back because that's a great entry point for this conversation. Oh, and the last thing I just want to mention is this is objective data 
same reason why we do any of our quantification. We need the objective data because sometimes we get stuck in a narrative or we get stuck on a diagnosis or we get stuck on, you know, just a belief that something is going on in our body. So let's come back to the data so we can either confirm, deny, and nuance. Yeah. All right. All right. Let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Andrew Hill. He is a neuroscientist, entrepreneur, and biohacking advocate. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA and is best known for his mission to bring the brain hacking technology of neurofeedback into mainstream practice. To achieve this, Dr. Hill founded Peak Brain Institute in 2015, a community-oriented company that teaches brain training from a fitness perspective and uses EEG neurofeedback and QEEG brain mapping designed to help all people achieve their brain performance goals. Yes, he does take it from a fitness perspective. He says it's like exercise for your brain. So just like you would go to the gym and work out your muscles, neurofeedback, you can work out your brain. All right, let's go see our psychic. All right, welcome, Dr. Hill, or welcome back, Dr. Hill, to the Biohacker Babes. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, guys. Nice to be back. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, it's been a quick two years, I would say, since you were last on the podcast. Hard to believe. <laughs> Nothing no. has happened. <laughs> no, the whole world's been kind of blurry for the past couple of years. So it's like no time has passed at all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for our listeners, I am just going to throw this out there right away. If you did not hear our first episode with Dr. Hill, please go back and listen to that. It's episode 56. It was two years ago, August 2020 right in the middle of the pandemic. And in that episode, I will say we did a really deep dive on neurofeedback, what it is, who it's for, brain mapping. Um, we talked a little bit about like addiction, what's going on in the brain there. Really, really comprehensive episode. So definitely go back and check that out. But for anyone that maybe missed that and is like, oh, I just want to listen to this one right now. Let's kick it off with like a very high overview of what brain mapping is, because we are also going to share our personal brain mapping results live on today's episode. So That's let's right. kick stunt off with brains. That. You guys are stunt brains today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so brain mapping is a measurement of your uh, sort of resting brain's activity and then compared to the average sort of age match sample. I mean, brain mapping is a tool that we use to understand essentially how big giant circuits in the brain work, but because people are unusual, it's not this landscape of diagnosing things necessarily. Yes, you can see unusual features, but you end up sort of having to sort of create models about how people's brains are working and, and understand them. And it's used historically in things like ADHD and seizure and pre-surgery and autism and other stuff like that. But Peak Brain, my, my company uses it to help people understand their brains. And so we measure your brain with a cap on. You guys both did this, of course. Put a cap on your head, squirt it full of gel. I think we had you sit there for five or 10 minutes, eyes closed, and then again, eyes open. The brain's in very different modes, so to speak, when the eyes are open versus closed, at least in the visual system, which is obviously activated for most of us with the eyes open. And we also do an attention test, which you guys may agree is so much fun, that ones <laughs> and twos test. So we sarcastically oh, yeah. here, yeah. Um, we bore you to tears for about 20 minutes. We have you um, respond to things that are not terribly dynamic. And we'll slow down and bore you to the extent that we can figure out ways in which your attention's falling over and unpack executive function or the control over your attention, as well as unpack some of the brain resources. And that can help you see things like attention, stress, sleep, uh, speed of processing, brain fog, uh, and other quirky, interesting things about your own brain. So uh, it's a way to navigate 
what is often mysterious, the way that a lot of us in the biohacker world do now, looking at lipid panels and genome, you know, SNPs and all kinds of metrics to figure out how to optimize, you can now look at your brain activity, look at your alpha speed, for instance, which tracks your speed of processing. So if you're having lots of word finding issues post-COVID, your alpha speed's tanked. You can see that in your brain. Or with aging, for instance, you're 50, 60 years old and you're doing tip of the tongue, same thing. You see alpha as an idle speed will have dragged down relative to your age. So it's a tool you can use to navigate and uh, often then predict what will move you, what will change your brain, change your resources. So you guys haven't done this yet with us, but the next step would be after mapping your brain is to spend a few months exercising the brainwaves and um, making changes in those resources of stress, sleep, attention, speed of processing, et cetera. Yeah. So I got to experience just one single neurofeedback session, which was pretty cool. And I, I just stared at Burning Man images for like 20 minutes. So I was okay. like, oh, no problem here. This is fun. Um, and I felt really great that day because, you know, the day of the brain mapping before I even got my results, I was like, oh gosh, I feel a little ADD. Like I need to go meditate. It was really, really difficult to stay focused through it. So even before getting the breakdown from you, I was like, it was revealing in a lot of ways. Interesting. Can you explain basic brainwave states, inhibitory, excitatory, sure. what needs to be strong, when and why? Sure, sure. So we have all these different brainwaves and they're very modular and the brain has all these little bits of tissue that will kind of act like little motors that come together and then disassemble into new little bits of engines. And some tissue is more dedicated and some will create circuits as is, as, as is needed. And each little bit of tissue, a little bit of computer almost, can do all of the brain waves at once. And it tends to tune itself into different modes by making lots of delta, theta, alpha, beta, gamma, things that are named like that. And those uh, refer to how fast the tissue is firing. So we all make delta a lot of it all the time. Delta is about twice per second, and it's the brain wave of life. It's the stuff that helps background metabolism. It is where deep sleep is. Uh, so if you're not dreaming, you're making tons of Delta. It's, it's actually literally agitating the cerebral spinal fluid and, and acting like a washing machine to pull out the metabolic byproducts. It also triggers memory formation when you're asleep. So you need that deep sleep to create the consolidation of memory. It's why you don't remember your dreams unless you're getting deep sleep. Wait, quick About, question. Mm. So I always remember my dreams. Mm. So say that again. You're not well, one to of two things them? is no, you are, you, you, you do generally. Oh, you do. Okay. But most people don't, a lot of people who don't sleep well, don't think they dream, but everyone dreams that you have a phase of deep sleep after REM and you happen to be consolidating memories in deep sleep. So you need to have deep sleep to remember that you've dreamed essentially. Oh, oh fascinating. Okay. You can't not have REM. And, and these little silly devices we all wear that, that track our sleep, they're all lying to us about REM, by the way. There's no real yep. valid way to get REM. So ignore, and, and I love my Aura Ring. I love my Whoop Strap. I love my Bio Strap. I love these devices. But just ignore the REM. It's completely made up. And here's the thing. If your REM is a, a, a commodity in your brain that you're not making uh, uh, in, in a healthy, robust amount every night, rapidly, like three or four days, you become floridly psychotic, hallucinating, hugely dysregulated. So if your REM is off, you kind of know because you have other bigger problems that are much more obvious. So deep sleep yeah. is the thing to watch on these, on these uh, sleep trackers. And deep sleep is directly correlated with the past two days of what you're doing with your stress and your circadian rhythm. And you can see it in the brain maps at rest as the quality of your delta waves, which is 
one of those mechanisms of sleep, and alpha, which is the neutral idling frequency. So uh, the, the idle is nice and smooth, and the metabolic rest mode is nice and average if you're well-rested. When you're not well-rested, delta climbs when you're awake, and the alpha slows down, the idle drags down. And eventually, delta collapses, and you have negative delta because you're too wired when you're asleep to get all the way into deep sleep, essentially. So that's a generalized anxiety and sleep maintenance state that shows up. So alpha is the neutral and delta is the deep rest mode. And between them, you have theta. And theta is like squirrel. You know, if you have a lot of it, it, it people have that behavior. They're very impulsive. But in general, theta is the releaser. It, it lubricates tissue to do its job. All the modules want to do something. And so if the module is making lots of theta, it tends to be very activated all on its own. And we tend to see behaviorally a lot of high theta states in ADHD. You can't pump the brakes, but you can activate the system. So generally, the disinhibition is a high theta state. And we see it again in executive function. You can also see it in circuits involved with anxiety. And so a high amount of theta on the front midline, for instance, might be somebody who obsessively bites their nails or picks at clothes or have songs playing their head all day long. Because you can't stop the part of the brain that wants to focus on something from focusing on the same thing again and again and again. So it's a can't bump the brakes kind of thing. It's like the opposite in some ways of OCD, which is a high gas pedal, high beta wave. So beta is the last real big category, activated brain waves. So if you're making lots of beta in a circuit, it's something you're doing with your mind maybe, or at least perceptually you're aware of it because things that are in the beta range are really where the mind, the thoughts, the ideas, the perceptual stuff, the awareness, the mental states all live. And also it's very, very modular, little bursts of activity here and there. So looking at brain maps or EEG on the scalp, if you see a little blob of beta in a certain area, it's a specific circuit. And you generally are aware of what that one's doing because it's a little unusual and you can go, oh, yeah, I kind of, kind of noticed that phenomena. So again, back to the idea of brain mapping, we don't know what is true for any individual because people are weird. So good job, be weird. And <laughs> outliers, weird. be weird. Yeah, stay weird, exactly. Those of you who aren't in Portland can still stay weird. The point is, though, that we don't want to assume that difference from average is a problem per se, and we don't want to use an arbitrary average a yardstick, which is the bell curve of typical, as meaningfully better than unusual. We want to use it as a measure of unusualness and then find the things that are unusual and think about what they mean. And, you know, the stuff that's in the way for people is often unusual. So it's a good place to start to think about if there are bottlenecks. But people can have totally unusual brains, have nothing in terms of statistical brain maps, have nothing in the way. It's not that common, but it happens. And people can have brain maps that don't show a lot of unusualness, but they have some deep suffering. So the brain map's a tool like your lipid panel is, you know, or your hormone panel. Yes, we think about it. We modify the system. We try some stuff. We go back and measure, and we refine our models. And this gives us increased agency more than it gives us like a diagnosis or truth necessarily. And in some ways, the second, the third, the fourth brain map you do on yourself becomes the ones that get super meaningful because as you feel yourself change and you measure things that don't usually change rapidly, that's when it starts crystallizing in terms of what you're watching or what you're looking at. Or you know, these days, post-COVID brain shows a huge hit. Delta goes nuts, alpha drags down, and everyone has brain fog, connectivity issues in delta, slowed alpha and tip of the tongue phenomena, and often low power beta because they can't you know, the car's basically driving the car around with the emergency brake on, foot on the floor, and no gas. And you see this phenomenon, but you don't know if it's from COVID or someone got 
bunch of concussions a few years ago, or they've been sleeping in really moldy tents and have an autoimmune reaction to it. You can't tell them apart, but you can see the signature of this unusualness of deltas and alphas and betas suggesting there's a fog phenomenon. And if you find someone's fog and it's real for them, people find it really freeing sometimes to look at a brain map and go, oh yeah, that stuff I'm suffering from, oh, it's there? And so you have this opportunity to take the stuff that's often been mysterious and you're relying on someone else to tell you, you know, what's happening for you and instead demystify it. And you can now look at your like, you know, broken shoulder on an x-ray metaphorically and go, oh, I'm annoyed by that instead of being guilty around that or feeling ashamed or feeling like that something's wrong with your uh, brain. You can just understand it, learn how it works, get deeper into it. And then the fun begins, which is pushing it around. And, you know, you, you felt, uh, was it, was it, uh, Renee who felt one session or Lauren? I Lauren. Which one. Lauren. I did. Yeah. You did. So I would say one person out of 20 feels neurofeedback the first time. Most people it's three or four sessions in to unpack a tiny bit, what you did, the burning man pictures were, it started off with a grid with no pictures, right? It's a little mm-hmm. puzzle pieces. And we measured on one spot in your head, the amount of beta you make, which is an activated mode. And the amount of theta you make, which is that lubricated mode. And we did it over an area of the brain involved with knowing if you're paying attention and also the management of some sleep staging. We just measured as, as you make it. And whenever your brain happened to make less theta and more beta for half a second, the computer went, ooh, good job, brain. And we're just beeping at you and throwing up squares in that little puzzle piece of Burning Man. And so you're like, ooh, what's that behind the next blank square? That expectation, that awareness of information flow acts like applause for your brain happening to drop its theta, raise its beta every so often. The brain notices, wait wait a minute, when I drop my theta, stuff's happening? All right. And it drops its theta. So later on that day, your brain was walking around going, hey, wait, I want some input. I'm going to drop my theta. And you were like, ooh, I feel kind of on or something. Yeah. Hmm. Does it have anything to do with an emotional response? Because I was able to choose to do the Burning Man activity. Does it matter that like I have a connection to that? Would it happen yeah. with anything that I looked at? The short answer, I mean, this, this, this is an open debate in the field of neurofeedback. The short answer is no. It's almost entirely involuntary. Points to that are, this works fine if you're a nonverbal kid you know, who's screaming at the wall. This works fine if you're in a coma. Hmm. This was discovered 60-something years ago on cats. Cats are not very good instruction followers. So the expectation, the voluntary piece of it. Yeah. And I've had plenty of teenagers in my offices sit there on their phones and don't want to train and still have changes in a few weeks too. So you get to sort of voluntarily suggest what you're, or or define what you want to go after. And then you check back in with the coaches and tell us what you're noticing, where you might do personal training. You know, the the personal trainer knows how to get effects, but doesn't have a necessarily a nuanced sense of your experience after the workouts or what your goals are more than categorically. So we take that approach and then iterate, you know, every day we're checking to see how people are feeling and adjusting. And for us, that's the piece of it that matters is the after effect. And it matters so little what you're doing in the session with your mind, as long as you're not getting in the way of the training. If if you're watching a, a different thing, it can get in the way of noticing the information flow. But as far as I can tell, it's almost entirely involuntary. And a lot of people do the training doing other work. So once they find the protocols they like, they set them up and have the computer beeping at them and go and do their business plan, their taxes, their effortful work. So mm-hmm. this, can, this can potentially even accelerate the benefits because especially if you have trouble 
focusing and you put your brain like in the problem focused distractible state and then you're training for focus and concentration so it has some double benefits but the expectation there's good research suggesting that operant conditioning or associative learning is improved when this expectation and then reward is met but i don't know if that matters that much here because i've trained plenty of people that are involuntary you know, nonverbal I don't know that maybe it might matter a few degrees, but it's such an imperfect process anyways, that it's good enough for the brain to notice the signpost that you're throwing up in the information flow. And the brain, I think, I think the reason we can do this imperfectly is because the brain's so good at going, wait, there's some information embedded in that changing. Wait, what's that? And it's trying to always, all brains are always trying to sort out patterns from in the background. I think that's why it works regardless in some ways of if you're really sitting there trying. And you may have discovered, I bet you guys both noticed this. Well, maybe not the Burning Man. What was the game uh, you did, Renee? I didn't Renee? do any of the neurofeedback. Oh, yet. okay. A lot of the games have activity like, like a flying or a driving thing. And what people often do is get in the way by tightening up. As it approaches the target, they go, ooh, and they tighten up and add noise to the system that shuts off the game. It like slows down the car, or the, the dragon misses the target, whatever. So people learn to like let neurofeedback happen versus make it happen, essentially. Hmm. Oh, cool. And is the neurofeedback different based off of the brain mapping? Like you'll review the brain map and then you decide where someone starts with the neurofeedback? Sure. So in going over your brain maps, I might come up with two or three or four or 10 different things that are plausible. In terms of big resources and sleep, stress, attention, whatever. And after we finish going over a dozen pages or so, probably you guys, you might agree that we had some sense of a few things you cared about that showed up in your data. And as we walked through several pages, we found other ways of thinking about that thing or a new thing. And at the end of each of those discussions, I had two or three sort of like goals that you had identified as valid in the data. I had hypotheses. You initially walked into sessions knowing how you feel, knowing what your goals are, how your brain works. And then I was able to sort of cold model and say, here's a few hypotheses from your data, which of these things are important. After walking mm -hmm. through that and teaching you to think about your data, you helped me think about your goals. And from there, I would build a three-time-a-week workout for folks to push their brain around. Generally, a few sessions in, they're saying, hey, wait, I think I might have noticed something. And then we iterate every uh, session or two change gears, and then map the brain again every other month, essentially. So usually there's a pretty big change, but the six-week mark in our second map, we often get a full standard deviation against the average uh, bell curve in the gross resources of attention, sleep, and stress. Um, so pretty big changes overall can be accomplished in a relatively quick time frame, at least in terms of how brain things in general work. You know, there's not really a most things are pretty slow in terms of personal transformation, resources in the brain. This can be really rapid. For some people, it's dramatic within a few weeks sometimes. I mean, often, I'd say half the time, it's like, wait a minute, things are changing. So wow. I, I look forward to creating some of those uh, changes for, for you guys, perhaps. Yeah. And what's the difference between people that change really fast versus not? Is, are there like gross lifestyle things that really kind of compound and... It's a good question. I don't think I haven't been able to discover anything that really night and day tells me if someone's going to respond amazingly well. I will say most people respond very well to neurofeedback. 10% um, of people respond slowly and 10% very, very fast. The only thing I can tell is that for the most part, the worst things are 
the more obvious the phenomena of sleep, stress, attention, fog, when those gross regulatory features are out of whack, the worse they are, the faster they change, basically. And that's kind of nice when it comes to suffering and you know, someone comes in with brain fog or crazy anxiety or seizures or migraines. If they're really acute, you know rapidly if you're getting somewhere because there's a change. So mm-hmm. I joke that neurofeedback is rather mysterious, but not really blind. Because things are happening to you. You're feeling stuff that's kind of hard to ignore. So, Yeah, that makes sense to me. Because I had some big things that were kind of bothering me. And I didn't tell you about them before. But you were like a psychic mind reader. You were like, I, I bet you experienced this. I was like, oh, how did you know that? <laughs> I know. It's a little creepy. I'm kind of like your tailor, though. I'm like, your waistline is what? Really? You know, like... Oh, okay. yeah. Calling yeah. me out left yeah. and right. I was like, wow, you can see that in the brain. It's really amazing. And and not just like attention memory, which I thought I was going to get like, have a lot of revealing information about, but sleep and social interaction, a lot of different stuff. So yeah. I thought that was really fascinating and yes, creepy in a really good way. But <laughs> so we're going to yeah, reveal here. our our results here live. Do you want to start with me? Sure. And then our audience can have some more context. We can go through the applications and how do we actually make these changes? Sure. So we'll start with Lauren. Let me share some data. What's up, biohackers? We want to take a few moments to tell you about our latest discovery. This may be the hottest super nutrient-packed new product to boost your brain and overall well-being on the market. So first of all, a little bit about my experience. I know that this product does not have any caffeine, so I thought, okay, this will be my afternoon pick-me-up. But I took it around 4 p.m., and then when I got in bed that night, I noticed that I was very creative. My brain was still flowing. I was thinking about all these really cool ideas for the podcast. It wasn't like a stimulating feeling like coffee, but just really focused. And I was like, wow, that's amazing that these ingredients can make you feel so productive, you know, really good mental clarity, really gets rid of that brain fog. I was just so blown away. And this product was developed after long years of research by the most advanced brain chemist and formulator today. You probably have all heard about the superpowers of mushroom extracts and collagen. So guess what? The product we want to share with you today contains the most hyper-concentrated forms of the four best health-boosting mushrooms, lion's mane, chaga, cordyceps, and reishi, collagen, and Peruvian cacao. This magic in a jar is called Collagenius. When you combine the cultivating powers of the four mushrooms mentioned above with the various benefits of collagen, it is truly the most effective way to energize your brain and body. It is genius, it is delicious, and it is effective. Yeah, and it's great because you can actually add it to your coffee. You can just mix it with water. I personally like putting it with a little bit of coconut milk. Really, really easy. It's smooth, chocolatey. It reminds me of like a chocolate milkshake. It's so yummy. And it definitely, it'll fit into your routine, whether it's more morning time or afternoon. I really love to add it to my grass-fed Greek yogurt. It tastes like pancakes. It's like pancake yogurt or into my smoothie. And just like Renee said, it is just so delicious. I really look forward to adding in some nutrition in the morning. Yeah. And the most important thing is it actually fuels your brain and body with all day energy without any of those jitters or crashes, which... I know no one likes. So if you find that you're struggling with like brain fog or difficulty focusing and you want to repair your brain in a natural way, don't wait. You got to check out this product. It's for sure the hottest mushroom and collagen product on the market. And we love it. Yeah, it was just launched, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be sold out so soon. So we encourage you to not wait. Go check it out at newtopia.com backslash biohacker babes genius. 
oh, we're geniuses now. <laughs> and use code biohackerbabes10 during checkout to save 10%. And Newtopia, the company which makes Collagenius, is so confident that you will love this product that they are offering a 365 days money back guarantee. Again, that special link is www.newtopia.com backslash biohackerbabesgenius. And you can use code biohackerbabes10 during checkout. That will save you 10%. And we will put these links in the show notes for today's episode, as well as our podcast episode with the creator of Newtopia. So make sure you check out the show notes and let's get back to the show. So if you're listening, we're going to share some yeah. visual data, but Dr. Hill is going to also talk through it so you don't feel left out. That's right. So we have two things we're pulling up. One is a set of attention test scores. So we, we, we bored you guys to tears. We flashed a number on the screen, one or two. Are Truly, still- I had tears streaming down my face. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, me too. Oh, I was I'm like, sorry. don't blink. Don't blink. <laughs> yeah. oh. Well, because the one is coming up, the one or the two is coming up on the screen, you know, left and right. And uh, the idea is the, the instructions are to click the mouse for the one and ignore the two, right? And that sounds really easy, but the computer's going one, one, two, you know, that slowly. And that's slow enough to unload a lot of the automatic attention resources and put you into a time window that you have to bring things online voluntarily that are rather transient brief resources. And that means there's nothing sort of cognitive to do. You can't game it, nothing to practice, no strategies work. And we really see how things are when you unload your resources. Mm. And we measured yours and the way these things are scored, uh, you can think of the middle of a bell curve being the score of 100 and plus or minus 15 points being pretty typical. So 85 to 115 is rather typical. You get above 115, you're kind of a performant. And below 85, things get in the way. And broadly, you were typical to above average everywhere. You're, you know, high above 100 most places. But the thing that jumps out, it's, I think, interesting in your attention testing or executive function testing is the auditory system is robust up in the 120s. Just gorgeous performance in the auditory, both grabbing the one and not clicking for the distractor for the two. So attention and impulsivity scores, just gorgeous for auditory system. But the visual is only typical. You're coming in about average for the visual attention, 96, and the visual distractibility is coming in at 77, which means you're about a standard deviation and a half off the mean for visual distractibility. So I could tell by looking at this that when the two popped up on the screen, You'd have a hard time not pumping, not clicking the brake, uh, the the mouse. And when the two was spoken, you had no trouble resisting it. So there's a visual sort of distractibility or impulsivity creeping in, which I thought was rather interesting. And this has nothing to do with like my eyes are not as good as my ears. No, it doesn't. You may, I mean the the number on the screen was three inches tall, bright green number on a black screen. It was outlined in a box. It's super easy to see. Um, this, this test only picks up auditory versus visual, uh, transduction or actual processing when you're really, really impaired with one of the senses, as long as your vision's okay and your hearing's okay, we don't see any of those limits on this test. And we can actually break down why the visual system was less, let's say attentive than the auditory, even though the 98% or 96% is there, which is pretty typical for the visual attention. A lot of that speed, using a speed of 118 to make up for not being as crisp or as on as you want. This thing called vigilance, catching stuff when it changes gears, the one changes gears is an 86, and the focus, which is catching the one when things are boring, is an 88. So you're coming in with a visual system like you're making up for being a little drifty by being quick. 
and you're making up for it successfully. But I can tell from this that late in the day, stressed, tired, hungry, angry, you're not going to be visually as crisp. That means mm. evening subtitled movies or stop and go traffic late in the day are going to be very fatiguing things for you, for instance. Mm. So picking up a hint of a visual difficulty, but you're working through it really well. And the auditory system being 120 means that there's a lot of resources on board. And within one person, the difference of one to two standard deviations suggests there's some local bottlenecks in your visual system for you. Even though they're not really in the way, they're things that you could improve. Yeah. Um, and then the, the visual distractibility, that's the score called prudence or the brain gunk squirrel and not be able to correct you know, distractibility, it's an 87 with a consistency of 79. And, and again, 85 is where things start to get in the way. So a little bit of the visual system. You know, I can tell it's not sort of ADHD because it wouldn't just happen in the visual system. It would happen in both. Yeah, everywhere. In fact, it is in the way at the level of something like ADHD. But yeah. that isn't how you're built. It's not coming from that. It's a specific visual processing kind of difficulty that we will be able to see more of I in the brain. I felt it so much. Every time I it was visual, I was like, oh, I see it, but I can't click it. I was like, oh, there's like a lag there. And I just couldn't get my finger to click. Yeah. It was so strange. And I felt myself getting like more and more irritated as the test mm -hmm. went on. And you see it, of course, in the transient scores, but you also see it in the sustained trends across the whole test with the visual systems 107 and the auditory systems 122. So nothing's wrong with the visual. You're managing it. You're relatively performant. The fact that you have these bottlenecks means that stressed, tired, hungry, angry, late in the day, whatever, you're not going to perform quite as consistently or efficiently or, or with as good stamina or high level performance because things will get a little bit pinched. So for you, one of the performance things, the, the targets of neurofeedback would be to improve this visual performance, bring it up by at least a standard deviation, one and a half maybe, and get it level with the auditory so that you feel basically that visual tasks are effortless instead of taxing. So how else does this translate into like my daily work? I mean, you mentioned captions on a TV show, but yeah. with work, I'm on Zoom all day, writing emails, you know, I do an email recap at the end of the day. Yeah. The places that can get in the way the most is when you have to do uh, fine controlled things. So if you had to do lots of small little tasks, you would tighten up and get kind of brittle and reactive and sloppy. Mm. Um, you know, this, this, I'm looking at a, a block here on the screen that shows how many times you misclicked this 440 trials in that test. It feels like at least that many. And you kind of clicked at the wrong place, not right after the one or what or the two, whatever, but you clicked like double clicked or misclicked because you misfired eight times out of 440 trials. And for someone your age, that's moderately brittle, moderately reactive, if you will. And so it looks a little, little bit, again, impulsive. However, you only moved your hand on the mouse 74 times. So between the trials, people lift their hand, put it back down. And the average score is 110 here, and you're holding still, moving 74 times. So this illustrates, again, that it's not ADHD, but it's sort of like a brittleness and a tightness. And ADHD is a very high number. People move, move around a lot. They flail. They're kind of disinhibited. You're like, okay, don't misfire. Okay, 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 tight. Don't misfire. Don't misfire. Don't misfire. Misfire. Oh. Stress. You know? Yeah. So, you know, metaphorically, two cars barreling down the highway, um, one of them has no brakes, and that's ADHD. You have the e brake stuck on, and you've pushed the gas pedal up. And so it's leaving you more reactive. So when you do get cut off, you twitch the wheel, and you're three lanes over, just like the ADHD car. But it's because your gas pedal's pushed up, not because your brakes are sloppy.
Mm. That's brittle and reactive, not hyperactive, not disinhibited. This mm. test distinguishes those two things. It shows the degree of problem as impulsive, but then when we drill in, drill down, it shows this as actually more of a stress and fatigue phenomena creating an ADHD-like visual impulsivity. I would like to not be brittle. That is not mm. a word I would like to associate mm. with. Yeah, you're working way yeah. too hard for, at, for okay performance, considering everywhere else you're amazing. This, this is a pretty big bottleneck for you, considering, you know, yeah. relative to everything else. Yeah. So would that um, mean that when Lauren is having like a really busy, stressful day, the ADD kind of like things worsen? Yeah. Or- she'll make a lot more mistakes visually. She'll get more brittle, more reactive. She'll be more error prone. Um, some other stuff in her brain makes you suggest that she also gets kind of like burnt out and motivated when that happens. Like there's kind of like a, oh, I can't leave me alone. Too much is building up kind of stuff. I would guess from some of her brain map stuff. So I would guess that the visual sure. thing is just, it's just taking too much work. It's not very efficient. It's performant adequately, but you're not adequate everywhere else. So it becomes something to get annoyed. As your doctor, I'd be like, oh, it's fine. But as a coach, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. That's an opportunity to bring up your performance because we can have you perform about the same, but with way less effort, basically. Mm-hmm. And after doing you know, six weeks of neurofeedback, I would expect you to do that test again and be like, wait, is that the same test? It was way easier mm. because you're not having to sit there and manage every little second of attention, it'll be much more automatic and under your control basically is the idea. Yeah. I definitely want that. I, I notice now when my brain's getting a little tired that I will choose to not push through because I notice it's just, it's painful. It's painful when I do. Mm-hmm. So we have now your brain maps, which is these colored circles here, and they're showing how unusual your brain waves are. And for the most part, you know, again, people are a little weird and it's a bit bigger. And we see that looking at the amount of brain waves relative to the average person, colored circles for those folks who are watching a video, and everything's a bell curve where blue is cold numbers, you know, low amounts of brain waves, and red is hot numbers, large amounts of brain waves. And what you're seeing for you here, Lauren, is that you make lots of beta waves or gas pedal waves in a few places, and you also make some extra delta waves, as metabolically slow and sluggish brain waves, a couple of places. And the place the beta waves are kind of stuck in high gear, you can think of this like a cramped muscle or cramped resource. And there's about, eh, there's probably two places the beta waves are cramped up. One of them is behind the right ear. You can see uh, some orange and dark red uh, extra amplitude, you know, a couple, three standard deviations higher than average. You also see some red lines, which are showing the connectivity back there. It's a bit locked up, not just in beta, the gas pedal, but also in theta, which is lubrication. So we're seeing an area behind the right ear, which is making a lot of beta waves, a lot of activity, and a lot of theta waves. So it's like not very well filtered activity. And this is the part of the brain that brings the world into the mind. I call it, I call it the princess and the pea area because when you tend to have a lot of brain waves like this, it's hard to filter information that comes in and everything gets a bit much. So mm-hmm. I might guess that you find things irritating in a sensory way first, like your friend chewing drives you nuts or you know, the, the siren going by goes right through you like nails on chalkboard kind of stuff. And it's hard to find that, that gain knob to turn down the world mm-hmm. that also social information comes in that way. And so social information can, can get kind of loud and it can be kind of a bit much to deal with people's faces, their anger, their loud voices, that kind of stuff. So, oh, I, yes. I, you know, when we first talked, I was like, hmm, are these things true? And you're like, hmm, yeah, it sounds right. So therefore I, now I know these are, these are relevant. If you were like, nope, I don't think so, then I wouldn't believe these things are all that interesting. 
you know? I mean, your sister, Renee, you also show a similar area just to give a visual behind the right ear. I resonate with a lot of that. Yeah. But you see, um, here, I'll go to page two, which is the, the, the pattern. So you can see the same patterns and look at this. So here's, I wouldn't know, look at the two of you guys. I would guess for both of you, I probably did guess for both of you that you have that sort of sensory and social irritability behind the right ear, a lot of theta and a lot of beta. But the fact that you both have it is kind of interesting. And now it means it might not be in the way so much as a familial pattern or a familial tendency. So in some ways, Renee, your, your theta that's high back there and the delta that's high, which is the sleeping brain waves and the beta that's high, different patterns. You know, um, Lauren, yours is more of a beta. So it's more of like an activated mode. And Renee's, yours is more stuck in deltas and theta, is more of a sleepy mode. So I might mm. predict some different things. Again, for Lauren, we guessed a little social and sensory loading of that tissue. And then maybe some of that, like you were saying, uh, I, of course, I always believe the client, and I, I believe you've experienced that, Renee. But what I also might guess, given that delta is driving that up so much, is I might guess that maybe two other phenomena are true for you maybe strongly true. One of which is you really don't like being in rooms full of people speaking to each other because you can't filter out what one person is saying. The receptive language thing gets really hard to handle. Yep. You're yeah. laughing because it's true. That's right. I know. I'm laughing because it's true. I mean, like even we were just at a conference all weekend and it's it's super exciting and it's fun, but like I'm I'm exhausted now. Done. Yeah. Because yeah. it was just so many voices everywhere for three days straight. Yeah. That, yeah, it's hard for me. I'm, and you I'm can tired. see you make lots of delta there next to the right ear, but Lauren, you make a little extra delta next to the right ear. So apparently, that auditory processing receptive language thing is way more taxing for Renee, but not mm. so much a little bit for Lauren. Now, I also might guess for Renee that you have tinnitus because of this blob. That could be a thing you're, you have know, tendency to uh, as well. Mm. And it's a bit less likely for for Lauren, but plausible. So mm. I do. Yeah, I mean, I broke my jaw almost 20 years ago. So I kind of thought maybe that was on the right. Mm-hmm. Um, I broke it in two spots on the left and then, uh, I'm pointing here below my gotcha. lips. Um, gotcha. those are the three spots oh. that broke my jaw. Okay. I don't know, but I definitely, I have a little bit of like the ringing. I have a little bit of jaw pain, ear pain. Gotcha. Gotcha. Connected, but- it, it could be, that's the thing. I mean, when, when, you, when you're going to brain mapping and thinking about brain mapping, we don't know if this blob of Delta you guys have, which, which is somewhat similar for both of you. On the right-hand side, we don't know if it's because you both happen to get similar concussions at some point in your life, or if it's because you're both kind of built this way, or a combination thereof. And when trying to make changes in your brain, we don't really care unless there's something keeping it stuck, because the brain wants to change. So while I do believe some of this tendency, especially for drinking in the world, I mean that the kind of brain you guys have, there's a few other features that are similar across both you guys. You have a front midline activation in both theta and beta. Front midline is the anterior cingulate. Its job is to decide what you're thinking, help you decide what you're thinking about. So when you walk into the store, you aren't like, wait, why am I here? You grab the the butter and the coffee and you put them together and walk out. Um, so um, I was going to say bread, but I was like, no, 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 no not bread. Uh, no, not, not, not for these guys, not for these guys. You grab your ketone supplements and walk out. Um, the, the, the anterior cingulate's job is to help you remember what you're thinking about. And yours are both a little bit in high gear in both theta, so they tend to change gears, as well as beta, so very activated. And I might guess that you tend to perseverate or obsess or have songs in your head or be a little no. bit like, right? <laughs> but you know, that combination of the front midline hotspot and behind the right ear hotspot is a classic set of resources being in high gear that happens in gifted people 
that have all the feels, that have all the thoughts, that have really sharp minds. So that like OCD and gifted people thing, it's a thing. OCD when it's in, in when it's your thoughts are having you, but if you're having your thoughts, now you're a CEO. Now you're highly performant and you can control everything. So when looking at a front midline hotspot, I wouldn't go, oh, these poor people. I would go, huh, I wonder if it matters. And if you're like, yeah, I kind of obsess sometimes. Okay, well, would you like to change that? Becomes the question, not here's your diagnosis. Because you can exercise the circuit down, put it down, change your mind, not obsess, but then you'll still be able to pick it back up and hyper-focus and leave the strength intact. And most flavors of anxiety are like that. There are resources in the brain that have cramped up because of overuse or because the brain thinks the world isn't predictable. And they tend to unclench and become, especially for the perseverative, obsessive stuff and the sort of like extra, the thing behind the right ear, the way you guys have it is kind of the opposite of autism. It's like, there's a extra information coming in. The nuance is coming in. The patterns, people's emotions, their their faces, the tone of their voice, the, the prosody, the lilt. It's all coming in, I would guess, in a way that's a little bit more than average. But that means you might have decided to become biohacking entrepreneurs uh, who are, you know, educators, or you might have decided to become artists and poets and physicists. Like this is this is kind of brain that does this, and you have it. But it's mm. I can only be somewhat confident of that because you both have it. So I'm like, oh, okay, those brains, cool. Yeah. That makes sense for these guys. They're brilliant, maybe a little anxious, maybe a little raw sometimes with social and sensory information. And I asked some of those questions in our first meetings, and you were, you know, you validated those enough for me to go, okay, great. Now I would expect some goals here for this person, for this person. Now the proof's in the pudding. Now it's about changing you, not about deciding what the label is. So mm, yeah. Yeah. I I really resonated with what you said on our call about being able to pick it up when you need it. Because like the OCD thing has definitely been something I've dealt with since I was a kid. I know I told you I, I used to wash my hands 40 times a day. I would touch the doorknob a certain number of times before I'd open it, the TV remote. I don't do as much of that stuff, but I still find like I think certain thoughts over and over again. I'm like, why are you still thinking about that? Like, let it go. Sure, sure. But on the other hand, I think it has made me successful. Like I have... My biggest thing is like my calendar is just drilled into my brain. I have never missed a call or an appointment or anything ever in my life. Mm. But it's like, so yeah, so how do I take that as like a pro and get rid of maybe the stuff that's taking up the time and dragging me down? Yeah. So that really resonates with me. And how do I get more of what she has without it taking over? Because <laughs> well, I don't have the OCD at all. I have more of the squirrel for uh -huh. sure. Well, that's the thing is you guys can decide to what degree you want to train, you know, tune these resources of executive function. The, the, the cingulates really sit at the intersection of executive function and stress, the big areas of the default mode network. So if those things are uncomfortable, there are things you can actually control over. Just like if you had a weak knee or one of your quads was kind of soft or something and was having trouble with balance or whatever. It, you know, we have functional movement stuff to retrain your body. And you can go into a PT gym or your favorite Equinox, whatever, and, and, and work out the system. And you can do the same thing with the brain. So it's very, very cool. iterative. That, that's one of the answers is not so much how do we get there, but what are you noticing? Did we get there? Oh, did, did that, how'd you feel after that one? So we, we, we identify goals and then we iterate towards them and the client validates, hey, wait a minute. I felt super focused today. I, got, I woke up this morning, pulled my list of stuff out and I, I walked all through it. I felt like my sister. I was great. You know, okay, great. That, that's criteria for success for you. And we would look at how we could elicit that effect 
and build access to those resources over time, essentially. Hmm. Yeah, it's really cool. I'm curious. I mean, there are a lot of similarities in our brain mapping. And like you said, you could tell we were sisters. Is that genetic? Because our environments certainly have been very different for a long time. Yeah. Um, I couldn't tell you were sisters so much, but knowing your sisters, I wasn't surprised your brains Ah. were this similar. Um, Mm. I've looked at an awful lot of um, siblings and parents and kids and siblings of the same sex and gender. The brains are very similar about half the time. So you guys are not twins, but you have brains that are as similar as identical twins are. And identical twins' brains are only like each other half the time. The other half of the time, they don't look identical, which is kind of interesting. But half the time, wow. it's like the same brain, basically. The first time I discovered that, I, I was working for True Brain. I uh, helped found a company called True Brain. And we had these twin guys from Argentina working as interns for the summer. I mapped with their brains. I'm like, wait, did, did one of you swap in? Are you playing a joke? I had no idea they were that similar. And then I kept seeing it more and more identical twins over the years. But what's interesting, and I would love to figure out the genetics here, but I often find that boys' brains look just like their moms. And actually, there's some hint in the genetic literature that brains are not Mendelian. And boys develop their mom's brains with things like intelligence and empathy, not their dad's brains. And that's more of the aggression stuff instead. But boys' brains, their EEG often looks like their moms, very, very similarly. Girls' brains look like their aunts, not their mom, more often. Interesting. There's some family mapping. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes girl brains look like an uncle, too. So there's, you know, this is true in some sex links trait in women. Sometimes you can have higher shared characteristics with your aunt because of how the sex linking. They, you know, skip a generation, doesn't really skip, but it changes the activation sites basically. So this seems to be a thing that happens, and I see this in brains all the time. But also I'll map a whole family and find you know the husband and wife are not related, found found each other because they both have the same flavor of anxiety and ADHD or something. So oh, again, wow. it's all chicken and egg, but about a third of your brain is probably genetic. I would say the rest is environment. But I'm only looking at okay. gross stuff. I'm not looking at the subtle subtlety of your experiences, your thought, your learning, your spirituality, the meaning you're making within, the meaning you're making as you push against the world. That's going to be really different based on all kinds of things. And yet, the traits, the tendencies you guys have for perseverating, ruminating, drinking in social and sensory information, having the tendency towards tinnitus were things that I could plausibly guess about those now become things that are somewhat tractable because they're things we think we can see. So now we can push on them. And if we can see it, we can almost always change it. That's the fun thing about brain mapping. If it's in the way, oh, okay, let's go after it. If we can't interpret it, it's not in the way. And it's not that that interesting. Um, So you have this opportunity to iterate and go through your brain and go after it and and not worry so much about the labeling aspects. If you do have sensory irritability or auditory processing or visual you know, difficulties, then you have targets. And now you can see if uh, you can push your brain around. And that becomes the interesting thing, not so much about, you know, which label do we pick. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. I mean, as biohackers, of course, we want all the data, but we want to know that mm-hmm. we can make a difference. And we actually just had a psychiatrist on a couple of weeks ago, and he's really for not labeling. Yeah. Yeah. So you're just confirming that it's not, not about the label and the diagnosis, but um, how can we optimize what's what's going on? And, and also understand what's going on. I mean, if I can show you, you know, we we measured performance that had some distractibility, and yet we were able to distinguish that it wasn't ADHD. 
That's kind of interesting. That's kind of a more nuanced perspective on your own performance than might be, oh, oh, you're distractible. Here's some stimulants. Mm. Or by the same token, biohacking, I mean, part of Peak Brain's club membership is free brain mapping throughout the year with our membership, which means we have a couple friends in New York City, you're more than welcome to do this yourself, Lauren, if you want, who are mapping all their nootropics every few days. I would love to do that. So go see Monica and do a series of maps, you know, race of tams, caffeine, whatever. Um, the stuff that's in your lifestyle, you know how it feels, especially. I don't want you like trying random things. I probably should get an IRB for that first, but things that are in your lifestyle as self-experimenters, you know, whatever. I can't tell you the number of maps in Southern California that I do with Adderall, caffeine, cannabis, and like CBD or something. What do you see with Adderall? Oh, it eliminates theta, uh, shuts it off, and deltas to some extent, and it cranks up beta. So it makes you more awake and more self-controlled. But it dramatically screws with features of anxiety and sleep dramatically. Um, and okay, I was like, there's got to be a downside there. Yeah, yeah, especially for for that stimulant. Um, I would say Ritalin is the most innocuous ADD drug that is in the is in the marketplace still, and it has mixed effects. It seems to be a neuroprotective stimulant, which is interesting. But I can't tell you the number of times that I've mapped somebody on and off Adderall, Ritalin, Stratera, whatever. And we discover that their performance is actually better off the drug and their anxiety markers are better off the drug. You can just do that work and just look at it and unpack this stuff. And as you remap your brain, the first modeling, let's say, of these unusual patterns, because there's good consistency within one person across maps, you start to get a really good sense of the stuff as it fluctuates, how it matters, let's say. So... Mm. I'm sure that'd be really revealing for my friends that think that they're high performers on Adderall. <laughs> or yeah, I, I can't tell you the number of te- the number of like 17 year olds I've done in California because they're like, "Mom, no, I'm better when I'm stoned." Really? Let's go look. <laughs> I would love to Prove see it. that too. Yeah. yeah, ninety times out of a hundred, it's like, "Oh, dude, you're kind of like, look how ADD you are when you're stoned." Every yeah. so often, it's like, "Wow, look at yourself medicating all these anxiety markers out." That's amazing. Yeah, and with sleep markers with mm-hmm. THC, people are like, I sleep amazing. I'm like, show me your stats. <laughs> well, they're gonna they're gonna do some weird things to their sleep generally. Yeah, yeah, that way. So um, and cannabis doesn't help sleep architecture, help sleep onset. Mm, so if you have problems with sleep onset, maybe I mean lots of things can help sleep onset, but should you be you know, should you be improving them? There's also some evidence that cannabis can suppress REM. So we can't effectively measure REM. You don't want it suppressed because it can affect plasticity, learning, that kind of stuff. So I coach people who use cannabis routinely to treat it like other forms of adulterants that you should wash out of the system to avoid signaling once you're asleep. Like you don't want to go to bed with any food in your stomach because then you suppress growth hormone release and you screw up your circadian rhythm and you wake up fat and tired and you know hungry. But if you fast for two, three hours before bed, you reset your circadian rhythm beautifully and you have a growth hormone release a few hours in, great. Same thing's true with cannabis. If you want to smoke weed for pain, for stress, for recreation, for whatever, it's not something you should do for sleep. You should let it work out of your system, you know, before, like, again, two, three hours, just like food. Mm-hmm. Uh, let it sober up. Don't go to bed drunk. Don't go to bed high. Don't go to bed full. Your body doesn't yeah. process those things especially well uh, in those states. And you're going to, ca- especially food, cause major, major problems in your mm-hmm. circadian. Your energy flux system is really confused by going to bed with a full stomach, basically. Yeah. I feel it. Ugh, I, feel ter- I feel terrible if I eat late. Yeah, I, just, I mean, I feel like wide awake when I'm trying to sleep. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's really counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can see it on the, on the ores and stuff. If you eat before bed, you have an accelerated heart rate, accelerated body, body temperatures. It tries to process all that energy. You don't get the, the drop in body temperature, heart rate. And we know that to release growth hormone, you need to have low insulin and low blood sugar. Yeah. So those of us who are above 30 basically have one opportunity to get growth hormone once per day. That's it. I mean, one little pulse and it's blunted. It's 25, 30% of a, of a full-size young person's pulse. But if you've snacked on that ice cream or that pizza or that whatever and gone to bed, no growth hormone for you. <laughs> and you wake up fat and tired. Yeah. Sorry. And is there a certain window for growth hormone? Is it just like a certain amount of time after you go to bed or is it like... 1 a.m. Oh, something. it's after you get into deep sleep. After okay, the first after big chunk sleep. of deep sleep. It tends to happen after the second or first or second big chunk of deep sleep occurs, which can okay. be variable. Some of that is going to be driven by the individual's ability to clear insulin, to clear blood sugar, to, to hormonally shift in and out of those modes. Some folks aren't very good at shifting. Some folks shift hard. So you can think of this almost like another another feature of insulin resistance where People that have hyperinsulinemia will keep it up and stay up. Or hypercortisol is another feature that happens, and that causes depression and circadian stuff. It kills the hippocampus really quickly, and you end up really depressed if cortisol stays high. So these are cortisol, insulin, growth hormone, delta waves. These are all circadian timing cues. And if you learn to, you know, you can go travel, you can go, you can throw off one or two, you can eat late here and there, but you need to know where the pulsatile sort of signals are so you can learn to reinforce them and put the system back on track. And then you, then you can stretch it. Like for years, and this is not a brain example, but for years, I used to stress about how many carbs I ate. Oh my God. So-and-so says, Rob Fagan says 65 grams. Oh wait, you know, uh, Mark Sisson says this number of grams, like I, you know, and, and I should know some of this stuff. I have a PhD. I should be able to figure out what the number was. And it wasn't until I started tracking my breath ketones routinely and figuring out my downstream late metabolism in terms of ketone generation that I realized what my own body wanted to handle against my activity level, against my sleep, against my diet and macros. And so I stopped be being one of those keto gurus who has a number and I started being like, oh, here's how you find out. And I can do stupid things like have a pint of ice cream and wake up the next morning in ketosis. Wow. Can't do it every night, can do it even probably a few days in a row. But like, uh, you know, if there's a birthday party or, a, or a, a bit of pampering or joy or whatever else, then it doesn't, you know, throw me off. I, I, I used to joke that I don't want to be one of those biohackers who walks by a donut shop and falls into a sugar coma because they smelled some starch or something, you know? And we have biohackers <laughs> like that mm -hmm. who are basically orthorexic. I mean, more in the, in, the oh, yeah. in the biohacker world, actually. But there's so much of this like rigid and it's a, like an obsessive slash faith-based adherence to uh, a set of ideas about how this stuff works that becomes really hard to maintain good relationships with. I mean, I know lots of fit, serious fitness people that get really in trouble with the way they manage their biohacks. And the same is true of, of biohackers, you know, who are using brain-based stuff. That's mostly because people are trying to look for the edge and they get in trouble trying things that aren't safe. But hmm. the risk of getting too rigid, of not understanding where the lines are for yourself, not understanding why you're doing it, what's impacting you, which variables to look at, um, getting too hung up on a particular variable. Oh my God, my SHBG is super, super high. Yeah, but how's your libido? It's great. 
then you don't care about your SHPG, that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, oh my God, my LDL is super high, but how are your, how's your VDL? Oh, it's amazing. How's your triglycerides? Amazing. You don't care about your LDL. It's the arsonist, not the firefighter. Sorry, it's the firefighter, not the arsonist. Mm-hmm. Anyways, the, the point is none of these details in the brain and the body are by themselves that interesting or meaningful. But if you can learn how the system works and you can get tools to examine the system, be it your MTHFR statuses or your lipids or your alpha speed, then you get opportunity to change it, steer yeah, it, yeah. build it. So. Yeah. I mean, Lauren's always talking about like that 30,000 foot view. Yeah. It's so important. You can't just look at one biomarker and obsess over it. That's right. That's right. And that yeah. can be why caffeine or cannabis, whatever is super useful on a brain map. Cause if you put a, your brain in a contrast condition, it teaches you about your brain, let's say caffeine and the brain mapping tool set all at once. So it really is a, we don't just, we don't just allow brain mapping uh, throughout the year. We encourage it. So that's part of our, our, our club memberships. Cool. I'm curious with any of those compounds, are you seeing any synergistic effect in the, in the training with caffeine, nicotine, nootropics, maybe any psychedelics? Yeah, I see a lot of those things. I don't see any synergistic effects with compounds um, and brain training and neurofeedback. I do see synergistic effects with hyperbaric medicine um, that can be quite extensive. HBOT by itself barely moves the brain, in my experience. It can do something, can break up acute stuff like acute post-COVID brain fog or acute, acute concussion brain fog. But generally, it doesn't do a huge change in the brain as a big sweeping intervention, mapping before and after, very little change, very little subjective change. If you add HBOT to neurofeedback, which is already a very large impact, about the biggest one I know, HBOT accelerates neurofeedback dramatically sometimes. So if somebody's dealing with an awful lot of stuff, the extra four, five, 10 grand you spend the HBOT center is gonna mean that you spend dramatically less time doing neurofeedback. So usually we do about Three, three to six months basically can eliminate ADHD or help with seizures or help you know banish brain fog pretty reliably in that time frame. Someone comes in with tons of brain injuries and or lots of stuff going on post-COVID, post-mold, post-Lyme, HBOT will add a third, you know, half again as much impact sometimes. So does meditating Amazing. routinely. It also accelerates neurofeedback. Mm. So hey, you talked about that on our last episode, just the amazing benefits from meditation. Yeah, I mean, people that meditate without neurofeedback have benefits. It just takes longer. And if you yeah. and if you add them together, neurofeedback improves meditation, and meditation improves neurofeedback. So I have folks that sort of accelerating, who are not that deep into meditation, six months of practice or something, and are getting experiences meditating you don't usually have uh, in the first few years of it, like absorptive experiences called uh, the jhanas for folks that are curious. Where you feel waves of heat or balls of light or have absorption, you know, consciousness shifts that are quite extreme. Um, this can be, you know, you can really get a lot of plasticity boosted and there's good research showing in neurofeedback now that one single session of neurofeedback jacks up plasticity for a while, a single session. So think about that plasticity boost on demand as you're doing other stuff, sports, learning, language, learning, athletic. Some of my guys are weightlifters. Some of my, my clients are weightlifters. They start Hit breaking through PRs of strength and muscle and body comp and stuff, adding neurofeedback. And I'm not working on their bodies, but they're getting functional movement and awareness and proprioceptive stuff and deeper sleep and more growth hormone and the whole system gets changed. So 
I generally like to add neurofeedback to everything. I'm maybe a little biased, but I think it improves almost everything for almost everybody. But in this day and age of post-COVID, and you know, I, I do find hyperbaric medicine uh, is something I recommend a fair amount. One of the big things, one of the advice I often give, I find, especially with new biohacking clients, I'm often cautioning them against things that might have mixed benefits and risks, especially in this like, you know, hard charging uh, world of people trying to squeeze out every little bit of performance. I want to encourage all those biohackers listening to remember that if you don't have actual difficulty, actual suffering you're trying to solve, then the biohacks you entertain should be ones that have no downsides, that are true nootropics and will only improve regulation over time. It is not worth risking some random research chemical or some inter interaction for serotonergic modifying nootropic because it's from Europe or some random place and you don't understand how it's going to act for you and it causes trouble. So mm. please stay away from things that have side effects unless you're trying to balance those against curing some suffering and you really have to. And then get some support, some medical doctors, some good biohackers to support you. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. Really Such helpful advice. Small tweaks, Thanks. consistency, and then like bring in the stuff that we really know that works. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. for most people in the landscape, I don't think that the research chemicals and the, and the, the true risky things that are called nootropics but that aren't, I don't think that's the real thing to be pursuing. And I'd rather you pursue sleep stress and attention hacking, get your SNPs checked out and dial your B vitamins from methylation, meditate, add some lean muscle mass, do some neurofeedback, and just keep adding interventions until you're dialed in where you want to be. But there's a foundation there that we often don't address first the way we yeah. should probably. Yeah. Basics, Basics. first. That's right. Mm -hmm. So before we wrap up, can you do a quick rundown about what Peak Brain offers? And again, we want everyone to go back and listen to the other episode, but I think some things have changed since we last spoke. Sure. So Peak Brain is a gym for your brain. And again, we offer this ongoing brain mapping access in all of our physical offices. In the US, we have a couple in Southern California, in LA and in Orange County, also in St. Louis and in New York City. And we have some partners overseas, including in London. And I think we're going to be available in Wellington, New Zealand, Copenhagen, and maybe Hong Kong as well. We'll, we'll update the website shortly and, and let you guys know. But cool. these awesome. are the Peak Brain Clubs. You can understand your brain and map them and things like that. And then most of our clients do neurofeedback. And we do that process in our physical offices, but we also do it uh, remotely. I would say most of our clients, you know, we send them equipment like this, which is a little EEG amplifier. And we have them uh, you know, learn to work with coaches on a live chat and learn to stick some wires in your head and find a location, get some good signals in the screen and train your brain. So you could, you could do your own burning men pictures from home uh, a few times a week <laughs> and the coaches will watch what's happening, ask you how you're feeling, give you new workouts, and then of course troubleshoot as you need. So we were already about 55, 60% remote before, you know, March of 2020. And in the past couple of years, we're about 75, 80% virtual now. So People don't need to come to any of our offices. And in the US, we have complete rental-based programs, nothing to buy. And overseas, folks just buy some hardware and software and we we train them how to use it and work remotely. We we yeah. really are probably the most, you know, worldwide neurofeedback center, I would guess, in terms of the most countries and the most virtual presence uh, that exists. But our goal for doing that was not to create a turnkey system that was weaker than our than the existing one. It was to take the exact systems we use in all of our physical offices and replicate it. And so that means we're using the same hardware, the same software. We do brain mapping from your kitchen with a live coach on a computer with you. 
So taking the clinical, highly nuanced, heavily individualized neurofeedback, and we've made that accessible, not a one-size-fits-all system that is just sold to you. So it's actually live coaches who are supporting you and teaching you and, and, and troubleshooting as you go. And we find that makes uh, the big difference. So please come work with us. Either come map your brain a bunch in the offices or let us know if you want to get up on our brain training programs remotely. We'd love to support people. Amazing. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you Thank for all you. that you're doing. I love that you're I appreciate people it. from home. We try. We try. Yeah, we try. Well, Dr. Hill, before we let you run, one final question, if you can leave our audience with a piece of advice for something they can start doing today for their mm. health and wellness. Get up earlier than you want to. No! Uh, no. <laughs> one of the primary ways to hack circadian or any, any system that oscillates, be it blood pressure or body temperature or your individual neurons you know, firing or circadian stuff, anything that oscillates does so with feedback systems, keeping it within a range. And one of the best ways, the quickest ways to change a system that oscillates is through negative feedback and delay. So you can really improve your sleep rapidly by getting up really, really early. A lot of biohackers I know are really focused on blocking light. I'm not um, a believer in managing light, believe it or not. I don't think light generally causes any trouble for most humans, the way its market is causing trouble. But I do think that when you wake up in the morning is the time of light that matters. This, the, the only light that entrains the circadian system is the color of light that shows up in the first hour after dawn, or after sunrise. So you have about an hour there within which you can get a circadian boost from light itself. After that, like the circadian progression stuff, suppressing melatonin thing that happened at the end of the day, isn't about the color of light. It's about intensity of light. Mm. So don't have bright overhead lights on late in the day. Have dim lights and lower lights and things like that. And you have no issue with suppression of melatonin. But getting up early, earlier than you want, several days in a row, will lock in a brand new circadian rhythm within a few days. And you'll wake up before the alarm, day four, day five, whatever. And by earlier than you want, sun's up at about 6.30 right now or something. Yeah, I get up at 5, 4.30, something like that. Really earlier than you want for a good solid chunk of days as a way of uh, locking in a new rhythm. And then you mm -hmm. can feel like you're sleeping in when you got up at 5.30 for the next week. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Wonderful. All right. Well, um, we will link to all of your resources in the show okay. notes. So anyone that's looking for you, check out the show notes. We will have Wonderful. all of that there for you. Um, and thank you so much for everything. It's of so great course, to chat with you. And of course. We'll have to talk again. So yeah. I'll have to invite you into the New York City office and poke on your brain a bit more. So, oh, I want it. And me in LA. You're excited yeah. for my yeah. training. Well, we'll have to send you a kit, right? Uh, Renee, we'll have to send you a kit out to uh, out to Vegas. Out yeah. to Vegas. Um, and of course, Lauren, you can just visit Monica in in the Madison office there, Madison Square office. But um we won't hold that against you, uh, Renee. We'll 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 send you a kit out to the West as well. Okay. The wild west. The wild, wild west. <laughs> Vegas is pretty wild. Yeah, it is. It. I try to stay away from some of the wildness, but <laughs> mm, mm. so yeah. All right, folks. Well, so lovely to see you all. Take care of those. Oh, brains. you too. You too. We will. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. See ya. Bye. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We will see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking.
This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.